Welcome back to Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community. This week on Soundboard, we're talking about new development and its impact on traffic. And in the second half of the show, a conversation about whiteness and racial justice allyship in our community. Why is it important for white people to talk about race and white supremacy amongst themselves? Well, we haven't talked about it, and look where that has gotten us. Today I'm joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes. Emily just put out an article about two new developments near the Dunlora development and residents' concerns about traffic. Can you tell me a little bit about what's in that area now? Where is it? So this is Rio Road, where it meets the John Warner Parkway. You have a lot of stuff there. You have the K-Tech School. You have the Dunlora neighborhood, the Belvedere neighborhood. Parts of it are getting constructed as we speak. What is Dunlora neighborhood like and Belvedere? Dunlora was developed a while ago, and it's mostly single-family homes. So it's a wealthier neighborhood compared to if there were apartments and things. Belvedere is more mixed. There's apartments. There are single-family homes. Do you know what the demography of that area is? You can see looking at the house values that that's a a wealthier neighborhood. From the people who've shown up to the public hearings representing Dunlora and surrounding neighborhoods, it's been all white people that I've seen. But I have seen some names that, you know, I know are Chinese and other names. I just didn't see them at the hearing. So what's being proposed in this area? What are these two new developments like? So one is a very small development. It's at 999 Rio. It's by this new developer, Nicole Scro. At this point, she's proposing 11 to 28 apartments, townhouses, and small homes, cottages. And so that has come down in size from the original proposal, and she's almost at the Board of Supervisors public hearing, and we'll be watching to see what that turns out. And what's the zoning like in this area? This is mostly residential, although there's a lot of mixture of different things along Rio. You know, you have gas stations and convenience stores and alongside these single-family neighborhoods. So how have neighbors responded to these potential new developments in the area? The biggest development that has, I think, really scared people is the redevelopment of the Wetzel property, which is a huge amount of land right on Rio, right next to K-Tech. And they're proposing, you know, 300 or more apartments. And I think the density probably keeps coming down a little bit based on neighbor opposition. But hearing that amount of new apartments coming in and people are already experiencing some traffic concerns, the neighbors, especially in Dunlora and surrounding areas, have come out in force. You know, over 450 signatures of petitions against these two developments And people have continued coming to public hearings. So it's really quite controversial. And what is the traffic like now? There are some really bad intersections on that section of Rio. I talked to the transportation planner for Almoral County, and he pulled up this ranking by the Virginia Department of Transportation of what are the worst intersections and stretches of road in the whole area stretching up to Culpeper. There's one intersection with Rio and Hillsdale, and there's another traffic light right next to it. And that is one of the most unsafe and also most fixable problems in the area. So that definitely is a top priority for the county. 
Some of the other things that are concerns for neighbors are not as high up on the ranking. I didn't see them even on this VDOT map, but the intersection of Rio and Belvedere is a big concern, and the intersection that I mentioned that's across from KTEC, that is also a concern for neighbors, and especially seeing how much development is in the pipeline. So one of the big headlines of your article is that transportation experts say that increasing the density might really help the traffic. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think this is fascinating because it is totally against what our intuition is about these things. We think there's more apartments, that's going to mean more cars. But actually, if people live close to their work, they actually are more likely to take the bus and walk and ride their bikes. And there's some good infrastructure in that area, and and the pieces are, are beginning to fall into place for that to happen. Transit, in particular, is something that is really hard to reach out into the rural areas. So you need to have this density near these centers to be able to in the end, cut down on traffic. How close is this area to some of the major job centers like downtown or the UVA hospital? If you are going downtown from northern Albemarle or northern counties, this is probably the route that you would take. It is 15 minutes or so from the downtown. By car? By car. And even by bike, it's not that far. I was looking up, one of my interviewees works at Charlottesville High School, and she said that at times it feels like it would be easier to walk. And when I looked up the time that she leaves in the morning, it would be faster to bike to CHS. So very yeah, close. the paths between that area and Charlottesville High School in particular, mm-hmm. I've been running on them a bunch and they're all paved and yeah. there's one really nasty hill depending on what direction you're going <laughs> in. So one of the requests of a lot of the folks that have been turning out to these meetings, you said, was that they want the county to wait on approving further housing until they've built up the infrastructure to handle it. What infrastructure are they asking for? Well, they don't exactly know. They've heard some of the suggestions and they're not, you know, after doing their own research, they're not convinced that that's going to do it. So that was one question I kept asking people is what's the tipping point? What's the infrastructure that you want? And People weren't able to answer, but they did feel like they wanted some hope that some of these things that are particular concerns to them are on the horizon to be fixed and have a design and a plan. Are there good bus route options from that area to major job centers? Yeah, the the most transit is obviously within the city, and then there are some routes that are extending, and the county has been envisioning this rapid bus line along US-29 and thinking about how Rio would play into that. So it definitely is something that the county is thinking about, but it's you know a matter of how soon would that happen. So this isn't the first time that people have talked about traffic concerns when a new development is proposed. We've had this conversation yeah. <laughs> in a couple of different places in the area. Could you tell us about one of those other instances and how the concerns were addressed? There's a very, very similar situation in the eastern section on US 250, where neighbors turned out in force in the past few months against a development. And I think it's really similar because it's also on one of these big commuting corridors. And people are saying, you know, we already have so much traffic, don't add any more development because it's just going to get worse. But what you might be doing with that development is capturing some of the people who are commuting who would like to live a little bit closer. I think that's the major thing that the transportation experts were trying to tell me is if you don't allow this development, people are still going to those jobs. Right. So it's just 
how far are they driving? And if it's denser, then it's more likely that you could get a bus line out there or you could get better sidewalk infrastructure because it would be serving more people. And even if people are still driving, the transportation planner told me that is better for the county because if they're living within the county, then their taxpayer dollars are paying for the roads versus if they're living in other counties, the county has to pay for it itself without their help. Yeah, you mentioned this in your article that um, if people aren't living in Charlottesville or Albemarle County, they're probably still working in Charlottesville. Exactly. They're just living in Fluvanna, Green, right. Louisa. There's, there's yeah. a massive number of people who are commuting in every day. You know, if we want to get to the equity component, which we talk about a lot yeah. on here, the people who get pushed out when rents rise and things like that, people are often going to these surrounding counties or they want homeownership and they want to build wealth, but there are no options close by. So they go to these more affordable counties. So what you're doing is you're forcing the people with the lowest paying jobs to move further out. And they're sitting in that traffic too, but they've already Mm -hmm. been driving a half hour by the time you get to it. There's a significant number of people who drive more than 50 miles into Charlottesville. We've talked a lot about the debates over denser housing developments in the city. How are these conversations similar or different to conversations like this one happening in Albemarle County? I see that transportation and traffic, I think it's more of a priority for the county than affordable housing in terms of what residents are bringing up to the board and therefore the board of supervisors and the planning commission is trying to reflect some of those concerns. So whereas in Charlottesville public hearings, you know, affordable housing is the most hot button emotional issue that people talk about, but that is more like transportation and traffic in the county. How does the county's history of affordability, how is it similar or different to the city? There's more affordability in the rural areas, but in the urban ring, there are a lot of subdivisions which mean this wealthier kind of neighborhood. So that means that on average, the Almoral income is higher than Charlottesville. Charlottesville also has more public housing, more subsidized housing, and those are very organized communities in the city. So that shifts also who is coming to the meetings. I think also a big thing that comes up in the, in the city conversation is there's a history of historically black neighborhoods mm-hmm. or historically affordable neighborhoods that have been experiencing this rapid gentrification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely are historically black neighborhoods in Elmoral County, and especially in some of the rural areas. And They're not areas I was really familiar with growing up, but they're absolutely there. But they're maybe not as visible, maybe not as organized because they're farther out. Mm -hmm. And there are some like the hydraulic intersection that at one point was a historically black community, but we don't see that all anymore. Redeveloped into a completely different form. The Dunlora Homeowners Association president is quoted in your article saying that their concerns were not not in my backyard. Mm hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the significance of that phrase and why do you think she felt the need to distance herself in the community from NIMBYism? Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting quote. It has a really bad reputation, NIMBYism. It has this reputation of wealthy, white people who, are, who don't care about anybody else and are very selfish. And what she's saying in that is, you know, we're not selfish. These are key quality of life concerns. She said as part of that quote, like, feeling like people will no longer want to live in Dunlora with all this traffic. But I think the flip side to that is that every neighborhood feels this way. 
every neighborhood cares about there not being change in their own neighborhood. And it's very natural. The way I see it is how do we listen to neighbors, but also take their concerns and and sort of figure out how that fits in with things like power and who has the money and time to come to these meetings. And historically, NIMBYism has meant that wealthy white neighborhoods have been able to prevent development in their backyards, while less powerful and less listened to communities have not been able to exert that control. So this piece of land that Dunlora sits on was owned by the Carr family and operated as a plantation where enslaved people worked and lived. And in addition to that, just after the Civil War, people formerly enslaved on the Dunlora plantation gained control of a western part of it, which became known as the Free State. How has that part of its history, or has that part of its history come up at all in the conversations about development there? No, I hadn't heard this fact until you looked it up, which is really helpful. I think that's part of what this really fascinating project by Jordi Yeager is trying to do, where he's invited members of the community to look up racial covenants and the history of the land that they live on and see how the past history of racism is very much alive today. When I grew up, I saw segregation like across the street and I always thought, like, how is this happening? I don't understand. You know, is this just a natural thing? Like, what's going on? And hearing that racial covenants continue to affect the value of the land we live on and therefore who can afford it, if we don't make changes, that's just the way it's going to stay. How should we think of a piece of land's history when it comes to present development options? I mean, I think it... it would be an interesting addition to these conversations about development to contextualize them within this kind of mapping Seville project that Jordi Yeager is doing. Just thinking, okay, this is the present that we have, and we ourselves have not been involved in racial covenants and slavery and things like that. But you know, what is it, it influences to, our lives and the decisions that we make? Lives, yeah. One thing that I heard in a a recent work session by the Board of Supervisors is that at least one of the supervisors is interested in getting sort of an equity profile or questionnaire as part of all of their decisions. And so this might be a way that you see some of that history coming up or how, how things like whether you allow a new development, how that might factor into whether you get a more integrated area. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? It was just something that Supervisor Diantha McKeel asked for in the last work session, it, if it were implemented, it would be related to their new Office of Equity and Inclusion. And it's something that Charlottesville has also talked about doing. I think there are precedents somewhere in the country, but we haven't seen it locally yet, so I don't know exactly what it would look like. But I was really intrigued to hear that this was something one of the supervisors asked for because I did an article in August about how the Board of Supervisors doesn't talk about race Ever. You know, I, I looked up, looked through their meeting minutes and tried to use just a whole variety of search terms to figure this out. And it's a, it's a very rare occasion. All right. Let's end the segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? So I have a special next week, which is that I'm moving to New Haven, Connecticut. I'm joining a nonprofit news outlet there and I'm going to do very similar things to what I do at Charlottesville tomorrow. The move is happening this weekend, so I'm very 
like obsessed with it right now. Um, but I'm very excited to be handing off my beat to Charlotte Woods, my coworker, who actually has a history of doing development articles. So she's already great, and we've been splitting the Development Digest series that I do the past couple of weeks. We're going to miss you so much. I'm going to miss you guys, too. I love this show. So we hope that you'll keep following all the stuff that Emily Hayes puts up out there. We're excited for you, too. We're going to miss talking to you, but it sounds like a cool opportunity. Thanks so much. Yay. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for coming for the last time. If you ever come back to visit, we would love to have a – we could <laughs> do a little, like, New Haven, yeah. Charlottesville, college town. Yeah, exactly. Like, Real town gown tensions up there. Yeah. Oh you want to give us a little teaser? <laughs> I went to school up there, and I just remember seeing their, like, iron gates between Yale and New Haven, uh, which is a very different vibe from between Charlottesville and UVA, and so I'm just intrigued to report more on that. Lots to dig into. And you're having your own little week of uh, personal housing and development change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Signed my lease last night at, like, midnight. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank we appreciate you. it. <laughs> Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. A lot of white people come into radical spaces thinking that they're going to be the leaders, and all that does is just create more power centralized with white people. Can you start off by saying your name and telling us a little bit about yourself and about Surge? Yeah, so my name's Anna Malinowski. I'm a member of the planning team for Showing Up for Racial Justice Charlottesville. That's what Surge stands for. Surge as a national organization started as an accountability partner to the movement for Black Lives. And Surge Charlottesville started in 2016 after the election of Donald Trump. Our goal is basically to collect white people, educate them on how to be better allies, how to unlearn their white privilege, and be a part of the change in the community. How can white people be good allies to racial justice movements? I think that one of the first things is like to understand, recognize, and put into practice that this isn't about you. You're not going to be at the forefront of these campaigns, but that's okay because sometimes you have to do things to create change and you're not going to get a pat on the back for it. You know, you're not going to get a gold star. I also want people to know that you are going to screw up eventually. We're all learning. So don't think that wokeness is some type of barrier also. Just be willing to learn things that you never learned before, to be critical of your place in white supremacy and Overall, the thing that you're going to get from being a great ally is a great community. Can you tell me a little bit about your own process of trying to unlearn white supremacy? I just want to start off first, I always say this, that unpacking my white privilege was a long process. A lot of that came because of the teachings and writings of uh, women of color, particularly um, black and brown, uh, queer and trans people, and I owe all of my 
growth to them. I have a relative who's a person of color. So growing up, I saw the racism that they endured. And as a human, you know, you just have empathy for that. And the brutal murder of Trayvon Martin happened in 2012 when I was a junior in college. And the acquittal of George Zimmerman was was close after that. And that was really one of the most radicalizing points in my life, um, particularly because after that, for the next two or three years, there was huge movement around police brutality, you know, with the deaths of Eric Garner, Mike Brown, Alton Sterling. And in 2016, after Donald Trump was elected, I'd been thinking about these ideas and about liberation, but I wasn't doing something actively about it. And so after Trump was elected, I was like, I have to do something. You know, I can't just sit by and be complicit. And that's when I joined Surge. And August 12th was kind of like my final radicalizing point. I was um, a victim of the white supremacist car attack. And it showed me that a lot of change needs to happen, not just in this city, but nationwide. So I can owe my growth to a lot of different events and people. Um, And I hope that people who are worried about unpacking their privilege and about, you know, am I woke enough or am I going to say the right things, understand that it's going to take a while and it's and I'm always growing, you know, I'm always changing, but that shouldn't be a barrier to like starting the process. Why is it important for white people to talk about race and white supremacy amongst themselves? People of color have to live with the burdens of racism every day, right? It shouldn't also be their responsibility to teach us. So it's up to us to have conversations with each other so that we put the burden off of them and also we can show up as good allies. So you all have recently done a lecture series at your meetings, right? Mm -hmm. On the criminal justice system. Yes. What do you want all people, but especially white people, to know about the criminal justice system? It's a system that was put in place specifically to uphold white supremacy. The first law enforcement were slave catchers. Let's pause for a minute. You might be thinking, is that true? And it is. In northern cities like Boston and New York in the 18th century, it was common to have volunteer watchmen. By the 1830s, that had evolved into professional law enforcement organizations run by the state. In the South, however, the first state-sanctioned law enforcement was a slave patrol organized by the Carolina colonies in 1704. Similar state-sanctioned slave patrols were common throughout the American South. And in Virginia, members of the colonial and state militias often made up these slave patrols. It's a system that was put in place specifically to uphold white supremacy. It was put in place to protect property and to maintain the status quo. And into the decade of civil rights, uh, law enforcement were used in the South to enforce segregation and Jim Crow laws. So laws that took away your right to vote, or you can't sit here, or you can't drink from this water fountain. And we reap the benefits of white privilege when community members of color have to pay. So like when we call the cops, they'll show up, they'll do an incident report, they'll go out of their way to try to fix the problem. But When people of color call the cops, specifically black and indigenous people, they're the victims of police brutality. If we get charged with crimes, our sentences are little to non-existent. Where black and indigenous people are charged with things like possession and they get life sentences. It's not enough to just read about it. If we're not doing something to take down the system, we are complicit. 
Where do you see this history play out in our community? The stop and frisk report is like my number one example of that. There has been a decrease in the amount of uh, stops by the police department, but they're still disproportionately targeted. More than half of the stops are of uh, African Americans. And I think the general city population of black folks is about 20% or 15 to 20%. In 2019, the Census Bureau reported that about 18% of people in the city of Charlottesville identify as African-American. And the Charlottesville Police Department reports that since September 2018, 757 people have been stopped, 397 of them were black, and that's about 52%. Another example, Sage Smith, who was a black trans woman who uh, disappeared in 2012. I remember when Hannah Graham went missing, and I remember the media coverage of it. I remember seeing the chief of police going on TV saying, we're going to do everything in our power to find where, where she is. And they used all of their resources, and they found her. None of that attention or none of those resources were allocated to finding Sage Smith. They have people of interest in her case, and they're walking free. They have put a very paltry sum of money to like people who have information about it, but they're not doing anything to try and solve that situation. Two different women, the same situation. One has the entire state behind it and the one is absolutely ignored. We did a meeting on prisons and we did a meeting on the police and on ICE and it was all part of an abolition series. Um, An abolition, the word, comes from the abolition of slavery. And nowadays, abolition is more commonly used when talking about the abolition of prisons. And modern abolitionists like Angela Davis have linked the current prison industrial complex to chattel slavery, basically as an extension. And the best example of that is that prison slavery exists. Firefighters in California, those are prisoners. People make less than a dollar an hour making clothes, shoes, furniture, a plethora of things. People have no clue how much stuff is made from prison slavery. Yesterday I was at the General Assembly and I was walking past the women's statue and next to the women's statue were incarcerated people who were maintaining the grounds around the statue. They were incarcerated women prisoners. So that to me, a huge dichotomy. Our capital is still using prison slavery. The general racial makeup of the prison population is completely disproportionate. 33% of the prison population are black folk and 12 to 16% of the general population is black. In our area, there's been a lot of media coverage of the Fluvanna Women's Prison because they were sued for the bad practices in trying to give uh, women prisoners health care. They weren't giving them the right medication. They weren't giving them the right sanitary options. In Virginia also, there's about 8% of the Virginia population who is disenfranchised. Disenfranchisement is when you don't have the right to vote. And we know that if you're charged with certain crimes, you can lose your right to vote. So 8% of the population is disenfranchised in Virginia. 21% of black people in Virginia are disenfranchised. The description of one of your meetings said you all would imagine what a world without prisons might look like. What was that conversation like? At the beginning of these meetings, I like to say that as white people, a lot of times we think that this doesn't affect us, but 
more often than not, it actually does. And people in the room shared their stories about how they had a relative, you know, who had been incarcerated, or maybe they had somebody who they loved who was involved in a mental health crisis and was a victim of police brutality. So that also is important, I think, to relating these issues to what your personal stake in this could be. I think people come back to personal stories about when they feel like they needed the prison industrial complex to, to somehow solve a certain problem. But in small ways, people who are, are putting into practice alternatives to prison. So a lot of people in social justice circles are involved in restorative justice processes within themselves. So if somebody does harm to somebody, instead of calling the cops and trying to get them charged with a crime, the community will come together and find a, a, a solution to make the victim safe, but also to the person who has perpetrated the crime, unlearn whatever made them do this in the first place. So when we started to say, you know, like, actually, people are practicing these different things. I think people started have a little bit more hope that that could happen in the foreseeable future. What are some of the groups or movements led by people of color in the community that you support or take direction from? With affordable housing, we work a lot with FAR. And FAR stands for the Public Housing Association of Residents. And we do a lot of work with people of color who are affiliated with the CRB, the Civilian Review Board. The Civilian Police Review Board, yes. Which is supposed to be kind of like a mechanism to make sure that complaints lodged against the police from marginalized people in the community are taken seriously and have impact on the police. We also do community defense, which is showing up in spaces without the need for the police or the city. And we do court support for people who have been impacted by the prison industrial complex. Can you tell me a little bit more about court support? It's supposed to make the people who have been charged with crimes feel like they have community and compassion surrounding them. Because going to court is a very alienating thing. It's really daunting. You're painted as a criminal. And we know that getting charged with a crime is a lot more complex than just being painted as a criminal. So we want to show our support for those people and we understand the nuances and complexities of that. We also work with a lot of people who aren't necessarily directly affiliated with an organization. I think it's really important to point that out. So it's not limited to just, you know, a Black Lives Matter affiliate or a a public housing association. We want everybody who's a person of color in our community to know that they are our accountability partners. I'm kind of interested too in what your impression of the limitations of an advocacy group that's kind of aimed at white people educating themselves are. Mm We have always said as like a planning team, our goal is to not have to exist Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because like our goal is not to maintain a bunch of power and just become this big racial justice organization. And that's why we kind of stay in our lane. And our lane is like education, collecting white people, and then putting them out to these different organizations or coalitions that are doing the work. There are people who have been working on this stuff for a long time, and they're going to be the people who are going to be at the forefront of these campaigns that create change. So so we know our limits. You know, we, we can't fix everything, um, but we think that we're a good starting point for people who are trying to, like, get better within themselves and show up for the work. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. Please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. 
My name is Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Myrna Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at cvillesoundboard.org.